Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. My name is Simon Carley. It's just me this week. We've had an incredibly busy month. The St. Emlyn's team has been out and about doing some amazing things, getting involved in education in a whole range of different places, different times and different audiences. It's kept us really busy, so I guess we haven't had a podcast for a while. Natalie and myself went out to the teaching course in New York. We had an incredible time. Rob Rogers and Salim Rosé run an amazing course with a faculty which the like I've not seen since Smack. I learned so many things from the people there and we had a great time with a fantastic bunch of learners. Some of the most powerful learning experiences I've ever had in my life were on that course. And if you get the opportunity... I try and get along to one of those courses that Rob or Salim runs, either over on the teaching course or on one of the other things that they're going to be doing around the world at conferences next year. Really great bunch of people and I learnt a great deal. Other things that have been happening, well, Ian's been running around the place, Rick's been running around the place, Janos Allen, we've had an amazing time. So this week, we don't have anything we've recorded ourselves, but we have a recording from the College Conference, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine Conference in 2015, from my talk, which I did on clinical judgment. Now, the slides and a blog post accompanying this are available on the St. Emlyn's blog site, and I'd go and have a look at that if you can. And great thanks, really, to the College and to the Arkham Phone Network for allowing us to have this. If you don't know about the Arkham Phone Network, it's interesting. It's a college project. So it's the Royal College of Emergency Medicine led by Simon Lang, who's a fantastic guy, and a whole bunch of other fabulous people who are bringing foam into the mainstream, really. They're bringing it into the college and they're allowing a wider audience to get involved. It's a good project. There's some really good podcasts on there and I'd strongly recommend you go and have a look. Increasingly, we're doing a lot of collaborative work and they are with us and various other different people. And I think it's a good way of a big organisation getting involved into free open access medical education. So with that in mind, sit back, listen to the talk. I apologise for one naughty word. And if you get the opportunity, please go and have a look at the blog post, have a look at the slides. And as always, let us know what you think. Thank you. Three days of the conference, we've been thinking about loads and loads of different things. We've had lots and lots of knowledge. We've learned about research. We've had data. We've had a lot of data. Seen a lot of data slides? Not going to be any data slides in this. We've had a lot of evidence. There's not going to be a lot of evidence in this. I'm afraid this is a talk which is largely going to be about opinion, ideas and thinking. And it's about emergency department decisions and whether or not you and I make great decisions in ED. Because you make great decisions? Yeah. Yeah, you do. You do. Right, we'll talk it to you later. Um, but what it is, it's about judgment. And I don't want to get into the, the sort of semantics about exactly what this word means. But for the purposes of the next 20 minutes, I'm talking about what we do in the ED when we make decisions. We're talking about risk, probability, gestalt, clinical decision making at the point where we decide what patients have and what we're going to do with them. I'm going to try and explain to you why I think this is so important and to give you some ideas about how we can perhaps make ourselves even better at it. Happy with that? 20 minutes. Not high on science, high on opinion and judgment. And to some extent, this is a bit of a journey for me because this is a great slide, actually. It's it's quite old now. I think it's 2005, 2006. And it describes the relationship between evidence and what happens. Now, I've been into evidence-based medicine for years. We've done all the best bets thing. We've been involved in the journals. We've published research. We've done studies. And evidence is really, really important. It forms this pyramid here over on the left of primary research, getting it together into systematic reviews. People write guidelines. There's always something landing in your email tray every week about a new guideline or a new thing from the college about how we should treat, I don't know, serum rhubarb syndrome. 
And some of that evidence is fantastic. We've seen some really good evidence presented at, the, at this um, uh, conference. And the REVERT trial, you know, the SVT trial where you put legs up and that's fantastic. Really good evidence. The average time for evidence to go into the literature to hitting the bedside is 14 years. So you can be the most evidence-based aware physician in the world, but unless you transfer that evidence through you, it doesn't reach patients. And we, as clinicians, are the filter that all of that information has to go through if it's going to then get to the patient at the side. So it's our belief, it's our understanding, it's what we think is right. Whether we apply the evidence, whether we think this patient is the right patient for that evidence that makes a difference. And so that's all about judgment. That's all about the clinical decisions that we make in the ED. And that's why it's so important. And we can carry on doing as many trials as we like, but unless we get through this idea that we have to understand how it translates into practice, it's wasted. And we will continue to have a 14-year delay between evidence and practice. Now, some of you have been here on the first day, so you'll know these points. Some of you haven't been on the first day, so I've kept the slides in just to make the point. But Scott Weingart on day one asked you this question, or told you the answer to this question. Are you an above-average driver? And for those of you here on the day, you will know that if you ask an American, Salim, where's he gone? He's gone to the bar. Damn. Salim, my token American for the day. Ellen? Thanks. It's always good to have an American in the audience. Um, 93% of you think you're above-average drivers. Slightly better if you're Swedish. You're only 63% of the time. But overall, if you ask this question on many, many different subjects, driving, medicine, anything, people are not good at judging themselves. And it's something known as an illusory confirmation bias. Because we don't run into problems a lot of the time, we don't run the idea that we're not that good. We're not good at judging ourselves. Now, if you were over in Northern Ireland earlier this year, you will have met John Hines, and he talked about something similar this concept of what happens as you go through your life. Any idea what this re graph represents? Those of you who may be familiar. <laughs> now, you may look at this and you think, aha, that orthopaedic surgeon last week is like such a in recess and the registrar. And that may be true. But actually, I look at this and I think this is my timeline as much as anybody else's. Because throughout my career, my confidence, my ability to make decisions has not really been matched by my competence. And again, Scott mentioned it on Monday, but it's worth reiterating this idea of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Really good research which demonstrates that people who are in the early phases of their career have lots of confidence but no competence. Give you an example. I was in recess the other week and I was teaching somebody to put uh, peripheral IVs in with ultrasound. So I demonstrated one, then we watched a video on it, and then he had a go at doing one. Okay, it's not great education, but that's how we did it. He failed, and then he asked me to fill in his workplace-based assessment to say that he was independently competent at placing IVs under ultrasound. <laughs> he was very much on this left-hand side of the graph. And we see this, but the summary is that we're not good at it. We're not good at judging our own judgment. And that's a problem if it's about decision-making. What other problems do we have? Well, as emergency physicians, we're operating at the phase of disease, which is often very early in the disease process. So most diseases kind of follow this, even trauma to some extent follows this, that there's the original biological insult in some way, shape or form, then there's early features of it, they then become more obvious over time and then you might actually end up with some fairly significant physiological manifestation and critical illness and we see this. And to some extent diseases like this, like sepsis, we fear because we're often operating and seeing the patients in the early phases. 
where the amount of information available to make good quality decisions is relatively light. This is the essence of emergency medicine. This is the place where we operate, on the left-hand side of this curve, where disease manifestation is not yet fully obvious, and therefore the probability of error is high. This is our zone. It's not the same for most other clinicians. Most other clinicians on the post-take ward round, in clinic, after following the patient up for ages, having got all the blood results back, even the passage of time itself is a diagnostic test, operate in a much smaller zone of uncertainty. They're not happy in the same place that we are. I'm not sure we're happy either, but that's the place that we exist. And we're also probabilisticians. We don't necessarily deal on an... In- from a thought process, we don't necessarily deal with individual patients. You heard Rick Body talk about troponins earlier in the week, and I'm sure it's been in many of the other um, presentations, that even if you apply a really good rule to clinical medicine, so use rule-out rules for myocardial infarction or PE, you'll miss patients. Something where we use judgment, perk rule, so gestalt of an experienced clinician says this person is low risk of having a PE, they don't meet any of the criteria of the perk rule, 98% sensitive, that's awesome, that means you miss 1 in 50 PEs. Now not everybody's got a PE you investigate, but it still means on average you'll miss 1 in five, uh, 500 people who come through the door, one of those patients will get missed. So we're always using our judgments about whether we believe those rules, who do we apply them to, and how much weight do we put on them. We're constantly dealing with risk and probability and uncertainty. And this is not new. William Osler, who I'm sure you know, um, said many, many years ago that medicine is, he checks, a science of uncertainty and an art of probability. And back then it was. That was the entirety of medicine because it didn't have CT scanners or MR scanners or high-sensitive troponins or probe BNPs or whatever. And that's changed to some extent. If I go and speak to my ophthalmology colleagues, for instance, and they want to know whether somebody's got toxic epidermal necrolysis, do a biopsy. They want to know they've got oculocicatricial pemphigoid. They'll do something. I don't know what the hell oculocicatricial... I can't even pronounce it. But it's still the same for us. Because at the point when we're seeing patients, the essence of emergency medicine is that we're operating at the beginning. We're asked to make decisions on our initial impressions. We're time-critical, information-light practitioners. Nobody else does that anymore. That's what makes us special. So let's go back to decision-making. Let's have another think about decision-making, about whether we can judge whether we're good decision-makers. I'm going to give you a little story now, and let's see what you think about this. This is a true story. A um, 35-year-old man, he goes to watch a football match. He's watching Man City, greatest team in the world, only one who plays in Manchester. Manchester United, for those who aren't familiar with Manchester, play in Salford. They don't know why they're called Manchester. But... He has a very... You're a supporter, I know. Um, he has a very severe headache, and it's so severe he collapses to the floor. But it's a really good match, so he stays. And then he gets taken home by his mates, and the headache largely gets better. But then when his wife comes home later, she persuades him to come to the emergency department, and he's seen by a doctor, he takes a history, and the headache's largely gone, he's got no neurological findings, so he lets him go home. What do you think happens? Say again? He comes back in. No, actually, nothing happened at all. He was absolutely fine. 
Nothing happened. He never got a CT scan. He didn't get a cataract. He didn't get his brain tumour from his CT scan. Nobody decided to shove a needle into the back of him. He didn't get an epidural abscess. He didn't get a post-LP headache. He got none of the anxiety or fear or any of the problems at all associated with somebody saying, I think you might have had a bleed in the back of your head. And he went on to live a long and happy, fruitful life. Great outcome. Bad process. Bad decisions, good outcome. Luck has a lot to do with our practice, as I'll describe later on. And similarly, you could play it the other way around. You could have this guy. Dan, you love a DVT. Looks like a DVT. Who doesn't love a DVT? Everybody loves a DVT. So this um, person arrives on a Friday and they look like a DVT. They get a well score, which is scoring two. And they get a D-diamond, which is raised. So they get put on low molecular weight heparin over the weekend. Uh, pending a scan on Monday. That's perfectly good practice. Unfortunately, on Sunday, they return with a rip-roaring compartment syndrome. They get a fasciotomy and months of rehabilitation. That's a terrible outcome, but great process. Do you get the idea? Process and outcome are not the same. And if you're thinking about thinking and judgment and decision-making, you cannot decide whether it's good or bad by just looking at the outcome. You have to look at the process. And this is a way that we can start to think about improving it. So how do we learn at the moment? Well, we've learned a lot from the airline industry, haven't we? We talk about um, looking at disasters and we do our human factors for when things are going really dramatically wrong and we now have simulators to do hysterotomies and thoracotomies and we were doing brain surgery earlier on this, uh, this week on this stage, which is pretty awesome. And that's amazing and there's no doubt that you can learn from when things go wrong and you can learn from when things go right. But I'm a bit... I'm a bit confused about that because to draw the airline industry analogy again, it's a bit like trying to learn how to fly a plane from Manchester to London by studying people doing aerobatics and then the other group who fly them into the side of a cliff. If your learning and your feedback mechanisms are largely confined to when the extremes of your practice, it's difficult. This young lady in the back of this um, car, van, taxi, crashed just around the corner from where you're sat now at 36 weeks pregnant, aortic root tear, multiple injuries, liver lacerations, hemothorax, facial injuries, arm injuries. Going to die. So she got a recess um, room caesarean section and both survived. And that's fantastic. Doesn't it make you feel good? We should celebrate these cases. But that doesn't tell us about the enormity of our practice. Most of our practice is not at the extremes. Most of our practice is here. And this is where we should be looking at to decide whether we're good at our clinical judgment and whether we make good clinical decisions. So what do we do? What do we know about this group of patients? I'm sure that if you kill somebody by accident, you'll know about it. I, don't th- I know we've got bad feedback mechanisms, but generally speaking, if you do something that bad, you'll find out about it. And if you do something so amazing, if you do a thoracotomy tomorrow, everybody will be talking about it. What about Mrs. Miggins, who came in with ACS last night with some minor ECG changes? What happened to her? This slide I should have changed. (laughs) There we go. I'm quite pissed off about that. um, We work in teams. Your decision-making or the outcome of many of your patients is related to the performance of the team rather than the individual. And it is entirely possible that you may not be that good in some areas of your practice, but it's made up for by the team. You've seen the holes in the cheese model where things go wrong? Well, actually, most of the time, people get caught 
an error gets spotted and it doesn't progress to serious patient harm. But are you one of the holes in the cheese and you don't know? God, they are again. Um, but then, actually, if you were making bad decisions, surely somebody would tell you, wouldn't they? This is a fear for the older members of the audience, myself. I think when you're a trainee, there's a lot of oversight about what you're doing. People will do case note reviews on you. They will see what you're doing. You're generally asking questions of a senior, and there are opportunities to explore your decision-making during those times. But as a consultant, juniors don't generally. Oh, we've done so much in emergency medicine to lower the power distance. We've done so much for using first-name terms, you know, dressing the same way, talking to each other the right way. We know we're better at this than most other specialties, if not all other specialties. But there's still a power distance. And it's still difficult for a junior doctor to turn around and go, actually, I'm not sure that's right. The more senior you are, the more likely it is that you'll continue in ignorance that your decision-making is not as good as it, as it should be. Go right back to the beginning. We're not good at assessing our own clinical decisions. Who's this guy? Anybody into golf? I think it's Gary Player. It said so on Wikipedia anyway. But he's the guy who's famous for this quote, um, which is, the more I play, the luckier I get, which is a great quote. It means that the more practice you do, the finer you will be and the more you will learn. And in golf and sport, that's true. But I'm not sure it's the same with us. Because you can be lucky for a long period of time. You can be the sort of doctor who says, I don't know, sees a febrile child in the ED, a young child. They've not got any obvious focus of infection, they look a bit peaky, got a high temperature, and you know what, it's a bit of a pain to undress them to look for purpuric rashes and meningococcal septicemia, so you don't bother. You can do that for a long time, perhaps a lifetime, before you miss something, but it doesn't mean you're doing things right. The process is still wrong, and luck is good because it protects us from harming patients a lot of the time, but it doesn't necessarily tell us whether we're making good decisions. And then there's the unknown unknowns. Donald Rumsfeld's famous quote about there's things that we, don't, that we know that we don't know. No. There's things that we don't know that we don't know. And again, it's entirely possible that you might be working, doing things which you think are right, but actually the evidence has moved on. So, for example, using peripheral inotropes. Can you use peripheral inotropes in sepsis? Yes, you can, but lots of people still believe that you can't. So they may be waiting to deliver that medication to a patient while they wait to put a centraline in, and that's not good practice. So unknown unknowns in your practice. And all of this sort of thing is, is coming to the idea that we need really good feedback, and that I've got a big downer on feedback, because the kind of feedback that you're getting isn't high quality. But that's not true. Feedback is absolutely fantastic. There's really good evidence that feedback works, and this is the evidence. It's the weather. Back when weather forecasting started, it was rubbish. How have they got better? The fact is, if you decide that it's going to rain in Manchester tomorrow and it rains into Manchester... Actually, Manchester's probably not a good example. Let's try somewhere that's got variability in weather. Try somewhere like London. If you say it's going to rain tomorrow and it doesn't rain, that's feedback. But it's not feedback on whether or not there was a tornado or a snowstorm. It's routine, run-of-the-mill, standard feedback. That's what makes you better. And you can do it in education. This was looking at feedback to trainers, that if you regularly do this and tell them how they're doing on a day-by-day-by basis, then you improve performance over time and you get less variation between people. Feedback works. Feedback works. What feedback do you get for the routine patients in the ED? Thank you. There may be exceptions, but I've not found anybody who does that. 
In contrast, Mrs Carley, who's an ophthalmologist, if she sends somebody to the dental hospital because they've got that thing, cicatricial pemphigoid, she gets a letter back. If she sends them to another surgeon, she gets a letter back. If I'm a GP and I send a patient to the hospital, I get a letter back. They're in a constant cycle of learning. They're in a constant feedback loop that allows them to see what their performance is. There's some form of assessment. It may not be the best assessment in the world. And that allows them to get feedback and then potentially modify their practice. And if you want the educational theory behind this, it's Cobb's reflection cycle. (coughs) You can't change until you understand what the performance of your practice is. But what do we have? What can we do? Because at the moment, that loop's broken for us, isn't it? For the vast majority of our patients, apart from aerobatics and crashing planes into the side of hills, that can't be right. So we can do better. What can we do? Well, the first thing is, actually, we can do a little bit more of the extremes. Some hospitals only do mortality and morbidity when things are going badly. That's okay. Please, if you're not doing it already, add an awesome and amazing meeting. Do the credible stuff that you do well. Share it with your colleagues. It does balance, to some extent, the two extremes of practice. So put mortality and morbidity up with awesome and amazing. They're really important. They will develop your service. And then, sadly, put some effort in to finding out about Mrs Miggins. This does not take long. For the admitted patients in hospital, it's really pretty easy to look at a discharge note from two weeks in advance. So keep a record, district number, hospital number, something that isn't going to get leave on the on the top of the bus and get you into trouble with the GMC and have a look two weeks down the line and find out what happened to the patients. You'll find out some really interesting things. Patient Mrs Miggins with the ACS, she had pericarditis. She didn't come to harm. I touched her on a load of antiplatelet medication when she first came in. She didn't come to harm. It never went to an M&M. Actually, that's quite interesting. That makes me think about my practice. And I can give you loads of other examples. Case note review. Ten cases a week. I now do this with my trainees. And it's really, really interesting. You will pick up things which you don't know that you don't know. And when you're having those conversations on the shop floor, when you're talking to people about whether this patient needs to come in, whether or not I'm going to investigate them for a PE, don't just tell them whether they're right or wrong, whether, they, whether you agree with them. So, patient, do I think this patient has got an ACS? Yes, give them some stuff and admit them, whatever. Actually, why do you think that? Why have you come to that decision? What other things did you think about when you were going along? When you were reading the ECG, how did you have a look at it? And so you explored the decision-making process, not the outcome. And again, it's fascinating. If you start doing this, particularly when people come first into the emergency department, you'll find some really bizarre thought processes. You know, why do I think this is ACS? Because the pain is in the left arm and not in the right well, that's rubbish. You get pain in either arm. In fact, it's more likely to be in the right arm than the left. You can start exploring why people have their beliefs that drives their decision-making, and they could be wrong. You can look at strategies for diagnostic learning. So 2006, you can go and have a look at this paper by Bowen, which allows you strategies for how you diagnose poor quality thinking. In this example, a patient who comes in with abdominal pain and one of your F2s thinks they've got acute porphyria. Really? Stop. Think. Why? Not just you're an idiot. Well, you are, but... Um, stop. Why are you doing this? And it gives you a whole range of different ideas about how you can explore that thinking and approach it and correct it. Think of... Metacognition. Think about thinking about thinking as a problem which you diagnose and then intervene in. 
As an educator, this is what we should be doing for ourselves and others. And then peer review, we trauma team leaders. We are a unique group in some respects in that we have lots of consultants in the departments at certain times. I don't think there's any department which only ever has one consultant in. So if you have a big resus, get a colleague to come in and watch what you do and give you feedback. And we've done this for trauma, and the greatest learning point from that is it's the person who watches, not the person who is watched who learns. It's an exploration of their decision-making, and it opens doors into the areas of unconscious incompetence. You learn things which you never thought you didn't know. So, coming to the end. Questions for you, really, because it's, a, it's one of the kind of talks. Do you make good decisions? Do you make good decisions? Yes, he does still. Good. And not got through there at all. And that's fine. It's really important that we make good decisions. The only way we can know that, because most of the time we won't, is to get feedback. And you're going to have to work at it to get it, because our current systems are not good at giving it to us. You've got to look at process, not just outcome. You must look at how people come to decisions, not just what the decision is. And train for the common, not just for the extreme. There's one more thought, and it literally is the last 20 seconds. I apologise for the time. And that's to look at the person next to you and then select. Look at the person next to you and select one thing off the next slide that you're going to do in the next 30 days, which is going to make you a better doctor, a better diagnostician, and a better decision maker. There is something on here for everybody. Thank you for your time. So I hope you found that useful. It's an interesting way of looking at how we practice in emergency medicine, or at least I think it is. And the last slide, if you haven't got time to go and have a look online, I think you really should go and have a look at the slides. I spent a lot of time doing them and I got a lot of help and advice from people like Natalie to get them to put together nicely. But if you don't have time to go there, one thing on the last slide, there were lots and lots of tips of things you can do in the next month to make you a better learner, a better educator and a better thinker. But lastly, the one thing that I did put on there for everybody is if you genuinely think you're still awesome, maybe you don't need to do anything. But maybe if you think you're genuinely awesome all the time, maybe you really do need to do something. I know I do. Anyway, have fun. We'll be back on the St. Emlyn's podcast soon. Just before you disappear, don't forget to go and have a look at the website, have a look at the St. Emlyn's blog, the St. Emlyn's podcast, our Facebook page, all the things that we try and get involved in. But have a look also at Arkem Foamed. There's some really good presentations there from the conference. This is the conference month on the Arkem Phone Network, so you'll find some other presentations from the St. Emlyn's team and a whole bunch of other UK and international speakers in emergency medicine. There's some really cracking stuff on there. So have a look, tell us what you think, get in touch with ourselves, get in touch with the Arkem Phone Network and enjoy your emergency medicine.